Welcome back to part two of my conversation with Julie Beeling. In this episode, Julie and I go deep into the roots of communism. We talk about the ideology, the practice, and the failed promises of communism. We then take a deeper dive into the infiltration of communism into America. After that, we talk about the war in Ukraine and break down and look at the roots of the conflict. Finally, we wrap up by discussing what we as Americans can do to stop the march of communism in America. Now, because I have to be very careful about what gets posted on YouTube, if you head over to Rumble, to the Mormon Renegade podcast channel, you'll find a complete uncut version of me and Julie's conversation. That's next on this episode of the Mormon Renegade podcast. So I want to take just a few moments here and just say thank you for listening. I can never tell you how much it means to me that you spend your time here with me. Now, on top of that, last year I received donations that helped me upgrade the audio, equipment, and software. This year I want to do the same thing for video. Now, if you want to help out and make a donation, you can do that by going to mormonrenegade.com and making a donation there. Also, check out the Mormon Renegade Supply Store at mormonrenegade.com and pick up some merch. Now, if you can't do any of those, I completely understand. It's not like it's been a banner year necessarily for our finances. So maybe just keep the podcast in your prayers. Finally, as I've started to do more video, there's a YouTube channel up for the podcast. But uh, just between you and me, yeah, I ain't going to be there very long because I have a feeling I'm going to get kicked off. So to stay one step ahead of that, I've made a channel on Rumble. So head on over to Rumble, look up the Mormon Renegade podcast channel there, and crush that like and subscribe button. Thank you. I have been very careful on this podcast to only advertise for items that I feel will add value and purpose in your life. That said, I've discovered a book that I really believe should be in every Mormon's library. The book is called Beneath Sheep's Clothing. In this book, the author, Julie Beeling, breaks down the communist infiltration into our schools, institutions, and perhaps even most distressing, our churches. The book backs up its claims with well-cited sources so you can go do the research yourself. This book will allow you to see the communist tactics and gives you the tools on how to combat this insidious movement in America. Julie is right now trying to raise money to make the book into a documentary, and I can't recommend donating to this cause strongly enough. So head over to mormonrenegade.com and you can find the link to buy the book and donate to the documentary in this episode page or scroll down to the very bottom of the landing page at mormonrenegade.com to find a link to buy the book. You're listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast. So, Julie, first, again, thanks for coming back on. My pleasure. Julie, first off, thanks for for writing that book. That is not, that must not have been an easy book to write. Not at all. (laughs) What was the most challenging part of it for you? Definitely the most challenging part. I mean, all of it had its challenges, but the most challenging part was um, the ending. Finish well, not the ending of the book, but the, the what I did last, which was exactly a year ago when I was catching up um, the Marxist incursion into our education and our culture in America to our modern day. And there's just so many different rabbit holes, and I had to make sure that I was being thorough without going too far down any rabbit holes and getting lost. 
And also um, just realizing how far gone things are and we're at a very late stage right now, much later than when I wrote most of my book in 2010, 2011. Like where we're at now, it's just, you know, exponential. I think we talked about that last time. Um, and so to try to, to do justice to um, what's happened to our education and, um, and the origins of that, that was probably the hardest part. I got you. No, I w it's tough to look at that stuff because as you look at it, despite how hard we try, it seeps in. And in, yeah. you know, not to the point of turning you to that, but I'm a big believer in what you look at a lot of times will, will somehow find its way into your soul. Um, Definitely. And, and it, it takes a, a, an especially courageous person to be able to look at the ugly stuff, call it out by name, and then, um, and then kind of bear those consequences a little bit. Um, yeah we talked last time and, and you had, you had went on your mission to Russia mm -hmm. and that's where, where you kind of get your first idea of, of what communism was versus, versus what it was portrayed as. I want to go back to that early days of communism a little bit because sometimes we can't figure out where we are without seeing where we've been or what mm -hmm. the what the genesis of the story is so to speak mm -hmm. for those who haven't read marx who haven't you know whether that was um the communist manifesto or das capital or any of those other books that that he he had wrote is is the spread of communism really essential to marx's ideas because I think people have this idea that that um, communism is something that that country is trying to do, and it doesn't necessarily affect us. But I don't think that's the case. Am I wrong on that? Um, I don't know that I can answer that question. I mean, the way that I see Marxism, it's the playbook to achieve communism. Okay. It's the it's the playbook to that that Marx delineated on to to pit groups of people against powers but pit oppressed people sometimes legitimately so sometimes maybe not as legitimately pit the oppressed people the masses against the power structures to tear down the power structures and um in communism communist um government can come in and and fill in the void that's kind of how i understand it okay because i was always under the understanding that in order for for communism to do what it wants to do it has to have kind of a global revolution right yeah oh yeah for sure and and i guess that's where i was getting at it it's not enough for just you know soviet era russia to be communist or or yeah. china to be communist what what is it in that thought process that makes it makes it intrinsic that that this idea of communism spread well, to me, communism is like the inversion of Christianity, of true Christianity. And um, just as Christianity wishes to spread, but it does so through free will, at least true Christianity uses free will um, to proselytize. Um, communism uses force and violence to um, to spread its evil message. <laughs> right. It's just an inversion, <clears throat> an inversion of Christianity. 
And <clears throat> it's pretty apparent to me after studying communism and seeing what it does that it is inspired by, um, not by God, that's for sure, inspired by Satan, if you want me to be direct about it. No, I, I appreciate that because just a couple months ago, I got done reading a book called The Devil and Karl Marx, mm. which which was a deep dive on on what what Marx's beliefs were. Because whether mm -hmm. you're religious or not, mm -hmm. or whether you consider yourself religious or not, I think everybody's somewhat religious, right? Yeah. It yeah. just depends on what you're going to fixate that on. Are you going to fix yeah. that fixate on God or are you going to fixate on something else? Anyway, in this book, he talks about like Marx's favorite uh, play was... Um, Oh, the, the Faust about when Faust sells his soul to the devil. And mm, wow. the, the other thing I didn't know about Marx was, is that he was also a playwright and he basically like took the, the Faustian bargain to another level in, um, in his, wow. uh, all of his plays and all, in his poetry. It's a fascinating book, but it doesn't surprise me. I mean, you, you clearly see, you know, the whole scripture by their fruits, you shall know them. I right. mean, the fruits of Marxism is death and destruction, enslavement of humanity. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So when when do the when do the communists really take over Russia? When did they take over Russia? Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> well, I mean, the whole Russian Revolution, all of that, nineteen seventeen is when it began. There was, I'm not a hundred percent sure on my dates, but there was a period of years where. Um, it was the reds versus the whites the white was the bourgeois the the um the people who had supported the czar the people with money and in the aristocracy and the reds were the the marxists the communists and you know there was warfare in the countryside and that was over a period of years um I, my my area of main area of focus was post-world war ii with soviet history so i'm sorry i can't give you exact dates on no, that you're good it did take some time, but you know, the, the, the Russian populace was really highly vulnerable to communism. They, they had just been, um, I mean, Russia just a couple decades, a few decades before communism came in, it had been a nation with serfdom. Um, over 80% of the population were serfs, which is really not much more than slaves. Um, just maybe like one little tiny bit above the life of a slave. And so these were people that were mostly illiterate. They were people who were not used to freedom. They, freedom was not really even a concept that they could comprehend. They were used to a very poor standard of living. Um, kind of to give you an idea of the disparity between um, like the, the, the czar and the aristocracy and the, the serf or the, and the peasants. The peasants, the average peasant would live um, in a hut and their livestock would live in there with them during the winter. And there's like a stove in the middle of the hut and it's just filth, it's just filthy. Um, you know, there was very little health care for the peasants and the serfs, very little um, schooling. They had to till the land of the landowners and um, give most of what they grew to the landowner and they got to, you know, till a little bit of the land for themselves. It was, it was a very dysfunctional society, very oppressive. Um, these were not people who were prepared to embrace freedom, no concept of that. So to take over Russia 
And then just to make all these big promises, oh, we're going to, you know, give bread and land to all. That was one of the slogans of the communists. So it sounded good and, you know, really easy to get a lot of people to go along with it and then get them to turn against the power structures. And it, it was not the most difficult nation to subvert to communism, I guess is what I'm coming at. No, and and I think you you make a, a very valid point in that because look, if you would have dropped, you know, communism, and and when I say that, I mean without the mask, right? Just someone coming out in 1950s America and saying, you know, hey, we're communists, it wouldn't have took, right? Because we had seen the fruits of other things, of capitalism, of freedom, of free markets, of all those things. A people has to be prepared to give up its freedom. This isn't something that just happens overnight. It's a conditioning process, right? Absolutely. That's one of the things that I point out in my book, the similarities between how communism took over the culture in Russia was pretty relatively simple and easy versus America, where we had to be subverted over many decades and dumbed down and weakened and, um, you know, quite a bit of a difference between the average American in the 20th century and their standard of living and their expectation of freedom versus Russian peasants in the beginning of the 20th century. And it's night and day. So it's insane. Um, but, you know, what what Marx laid out with Marxism, as you know, I'm sure, as you've studied, I'm sure to some degree, um, there were different iterations of Marxism. Then the cultural Marxists came out um, in like the 1920s, 30s, um, and they realized that the West was not going to fall to communism like they had hoped, and they had to tweak things. And what they, how they tweaked it was, okay, we need to infiltrate the institutions of culture. We need to infiltrate education, the legal institutions, the church, the family, <clears throat> and the media. We need to infiltrate these institutions so that we can start promoting communism, socialism, which they're socialism um, communism is just the forceful implementation of socialism the communists mostly call themselves socialists <laughs> excuse me but um the cultural marxists set out to infiltrate institutions there's ample evidence that they were highly successful all throughout the west and then we had the uh, the neo-marxists um from the frankfurt school um a few decades later coming out with you know starting with critical theory which morphed into then critical race theory and any number of other critical theories, which takes the Marx, Marxist com, uh, concept of oppressed versus oppressor, um, which with Marx, it was the, the peasant, the proletariat versus the bourgeois or the upper class. And now you can, you pick any, you just locate a group of people within a nation that are oppressed or who feel oppressed or who can be made to feel oppressed. Tell them, keep telling them how oppressed they are, stoke their anger, to get them to tear down the power structure with critical race theory, it's people of color versus white whiteness, white supremacy, um, critical queer theory and gender theory. It's um, you know the LGBTQ, whatever non-binary people versus people who are heteronormative cisgender. That's normal heterosexual people. Um, they're the enemy now to tear that system down um, in order to destroy the binary genders and um, the family essentially. And so they've retooled Marxism um, to prey upon the weakness of Americans with, for sure, 
our legacy of um, oppression of people of color um, and slavery was probably our easiest point to, you know, to exploit. And they also are exploiting the compassion of Americans who don't like to feel like they're oppressing anyone. So now it's easy for the, for this culture, this system that they're implementing um, to make, try to make Americans feel guilty for, oh, if, if, you know, we have to do the gender affirming care for children because we don't want children to commit suicide. You know, they, they exploit the compassion of Americans in that way, but we, we have to understand what's going on here. And for sure we need to be compassionate, but we have to be wise as serpents as well. Yeah. And I think you, you hit in, in describing, you know, this, the critical theory of Marxism, neo-Marxism, right? What I find interesting is that it cannot work unless there is an oppressed versus an oppressor, whether yeah, it's okay. true or not. Right. Exactly. And, and Marx is very clear on this, that, that there has to be conflict, right? And it's out of this conflict that, that this new uh, society will, will emerge from the ashes. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, Marx once wrote a poem in which he said, you know, I will stride like a creator through the destruction in which my ideas have, have created. So he was very aware of this idea of, um, of, of struggle, of um, uh, uh, conflict. Conflict was just at the center of how Absolutely. you got things done, um, which really raised a lot of red flags for me. And, and this is the part where I fully intend that I'll get another strike on YouTube, but that's all right. When you looked at Black Lives Matter, Inc., right? The actual organization, there was no doubt that that thing had its seeds sown within, within that Marxist ideal. It took me a while to figure out how closely it was, right? But if you just read that first part in there about class struggle, about um, racial struggle, it became very apparent. And then it even went so far as to say, you know, we, we really push against this idea of the nuclear family and that yep. it, it takes a society to raise good children. Right. Because it, the family is oppressive. Right. Right. Yep. And then it was a couple months later when I figured out the woman that actually started the organization, she confessed she was a trained Marxist. Yep. And so in, in that you, you see all the telltale signs of, of this, this, this conflict ideology. I don't know how else to explain it. I, is, is just this ideology of conflict. It's led yeah. me to wonder, though, how does it operate once it gets past that point, right? Because if you always have to have the oppressor versus the oppressed kind of mentality, how, do you, how does that make for a functioning society without constant bloodshed and blood running in the streets? Well, I mean, you saw, we saw Stalin. If you look at Soviet history when Stalin was in power, especially during the purges in the 30s, um, it they Stalin took that to a very far point where they were arresting just random people. They were arresting people on false charges as enemies of the state, and it was a it, he was very paranoid. And Stalin was the cause of a massacre of you know millions of people, the torture, the um, imprisonment, execution. 
And many of these people were, were actually mem members of the Communist Party who were true believers in the system. And they just, it was just this absolute bloodbath. And it's for sure the ugliest um, era of Soviet history because he took it to that length of, of making enemies into people who were not enemies of that system. And um, I think Mao took it pretty far. It, it's the pur purging, purges of a society that is a normal feature of communist, a communist nation because of that constant struggle. Right. And, and it's interesting when you, when you just compare the two, the two theories, um, like if you look at what, what classical liberal <clears throat> principles were, and when I say that, I mean like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson right. kind of classic right. liberalism, yeah. there was this idea that it, it didn't matter what your race was you know i understand that the founders struggled with slavery but i i think an honest assessment of history will show it was a struggle it wasn't something that that all of them were necessarily for absolutely um but you you get this sense that they're looking towards something where everyone's going to identify as american regardless of their their nationality their race whatever the case is so you had one system that was was about unity right it was it was revolutionary in its idea because it was through this idea of kind of rugged individualism that we could all come together as a community which seems counterintuitive on the surface but it worked really well for a long time mm -hmm. um and then with you free, with free will as a centerpiece of that yes absolutely the 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 hinge point if you will which mm -hmm. everything else rested on mm -hmm. and then you had communism which was kind of unity by force right you you'll agree with us or we'll send you to a gulag or you know absolutely something like that so did you ever study anything about chinese marxism because that's where where or chinese communism because that's really where where the the next big revolution happened right outside mm -hmm. of russia I have not studied it in depth. I've studied it. Um, I am, I'm learning about it as I go. And um, it's, there's definitely episodes of Maoism, you know, in the cultural revolution in China that are just as shocking and horrific as what happened in the Soviet Union. Mao definitely was inspired by Stalin. And, um, you know, it's, it's something that I am interested in learning more about, but um, I can't speak definitively sure. on that as I can on the Soviet, Soviet history. Sure. No, that's that's just fine. Especially, especially the, once again, my area of focus was Christians and the Soviet Union, more specifically. Right. So. What is it about? What is it about the idea of God that communists and communism found so abhorrent that they couldn't let it stand? Because they they want the state to be God, and so there can be no other God other than the communist state, the socialist state. That's wherever all the people have to look to the state as their protector, as their provider, and the rule giver. There can be no other God before the state. Right. That that in itself is a massive um, uh, hinge point for communism. If you listen to what the founders said, they were very clear that the rights that we possess, because we simply exist as people, weren't granted by men. 
They were granted by God. And then they were wise right. enough to say, someday there's going to be people who don't believe in, in God. So, you know, we'll, we'll say nature or nature's God or, or something along those lines. But, but, but their major hinge point was if, if rights are a man-made um, construct, then man can take them away. But if they're given from God, they're not man's to meddle with. And Absolutely. when you look at what, what Russia was doing, or, or communism, I should say, it was, it was trying to supplant God in every way. Because if God is the author of those, they can never be touched. But if he's, it's not, then you have car blanc to do whatever you need to to remake society to something that you feel is better. Yep. One thing that I want to just that came to mind that I want to point out, we in, in recent decades in America have gotten really complacent and like communist, you know, once the Soviet Union fell and it's like, oh, OK. Oh, great. Communism is just going to be, you know, it's just going to be relegated to the dustbins of history. But if you look at like the mid 80s, we had a third of the world was under a communist regime. A third of the population of the world lived under a communist regime. And we still do have quite a big chunk. Now, China has, you know, they made some um, economic um, changes to the system um, to kind of meld it. It's like a, a melding between fascism and communism now. But um, communism is, it's here. It's alive and well in the world. And again, I think more of the, the from what I've read and, and researched, it's the, the model of the melding with the fascism, like what China has is more of what, the powers that be have in mind for the world Did so it, it's not going to look just like what happened in the soviet union more like what modern day china is i was going to say didn't didn't china even give it a cute name like state capitalism or something like that and made it sound i, I, I think that was something that they coined early on was was this idea of no no no, we're not communists anymore we're, we're state capitalists right you know we're we're highly um we're we're, we're an extremely planned economy but you know we we deal with capitalist principles on the on the national level i i thought it was kind of laughable but um when when do we first start seeing communists really begin to infiltrate the united states well from from my research it was really um early 20th century pretty pretty early on in the 20th century even even in some cases before or at the same time of the Russian revolution, um, because we had our um, super wealthy, super elite here that um, they started funding different communists to infiltrate organizations, um, the churches, um, the Rockefellers Foundation, Carnegie, um, those types. And I mean, they got control of every every institution and not all of it was infiltrated with communism necessarily, but they were there. They were infiltrating the churches with communism very early on from the 1920s, at least. And um, as far as education goes, um, I did an interview. I don't know if you know who Alex Newman is. He's um, he's excellent. He has um, he's a, a reporter for the Epic Times um, or a contributor to the Epoch Times and also has his podcast, The Liberty Sentinel. 
And anyways, I interviewed him a couple months ago for my documentary, which is based on the content in my book, Beneath Sheep's Clothing. And he gave, I asked him to give a history of communism and education in America. And he even took it, I learned some new things. And so that's going to be a really crucial part of my documentary. But he goes so far as to say that the very origins of public education in America were communist in nature, that there was communism right at the, from the get-go with the individuals who instituted um, public education in America. And um, that's definitely hard to hear, but sounds like that's the case. The Rockefellers, Carnegie's were very, very involved in um, taking over education. At one point, I believe it was the 20s, perhaps the 30s, they were actually paying, they were actually paying more money to education in America than the government was. Wow. They they had bought out the system. And you read, let me see if I can find this quote really quick. I can find this quote from, I mean, this quote is just, this is from, just a second. Okay, from the Rockefeller's General Education Board mission statement from the year 1913. And this is in my, I have it in my book. Um, this is a quote. In our dreams, we have limitless resources and people yield themselves with perfect docility to our molding hand. The present education conventions fade from their minds and unhampered by tradition, we work our own will upon a grateful and responsive rural folk. We shall not try to make these people or any of their children into philosophers or men of learning or men of science. We have not to raise up from them authors, educators, poets, men of letters. We shall not search for embryo great artists, painters, musicians, nor will we cherish even the humbler ambition to raise up from them among from, from among them lawyers, doctors, preachers, politicians, statesmen, of whom we now have ample supply. Basically, the mission statement of the Rockefeller's General Education Board was to keep the people subjugated to the power structure that was already in place and to mold them according to their own will. So um, and then the Rockefellers funded various individuals, Dewey, for example, and they were educated in Prussia and they became educated in um, socialism. Many of these individuals that started the different schools of education in the universities across America, they were highly disenchanted with Christianity and had um, embraced socialism and also had embraced um, uh, the word is, 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 um, I can't remember the word, but the, the rat in the cage where the rat pushes a button and gets a pellet, that okay. whole, um, Pavlovian dog kind of response. Yeah. They, they embrace that scientific method to implement into the schools to, to basically to see the, the school children as animals with animalistic minds. That was stimulus response is what, what it is. And to train them up using that stimulus response um, to make them into cogs for the machine that they themselves manage and run, not to not to teach children um, to to embrace their their own unique talents and gifts and to reach for the stars, but to to be subjugated. And um, as we go even further, we go into like the 1950s. There's different experiments done. There was an experiment done. Um, in some inner city schools um, amongst African-American children where they, and this was marked definitely a communist, they, 
they put different things into the reading curriculum that was involving like acts of terror and like setting things on fire and Ooh. having, you know, not promoting it necessarily, but like teaching children to read using stories of, oh, setting setting the house on fire and oh, doing this and and also mocking Christianity in some of these cases. And um, there were other experiment, the other things that they did to dumb down um, America's kids with um, taking away phonics from the reading curricula in many cases and um, just changing things as they went. And then it, it reached even more. We'll just fast forward. I'm obviously glossing over a lot, but now we're, let's get to like the late seventies. And then we have um, Charlotte Iserby. Are you familiar with who she is? No. <clears throat> she, she was appointed by Ronald Reagan in his first term to, to the um, department of education and Reagan had intended to disband the Department of Education. And so she was called in to be one of the people to help prepare it to be um, done away with. And she was she she was alive up until, well, she didn't die that long ago. Um, there's a lot of interviews and she wrote several books. She um, got into that position in 1980 and then she had access to all of the, the files and the papers and she said what what she realized was happening with education in America and the world was horrifying to her that their goal was to set up a computerized one world curriculum that was designed to to turn the world and America and the world into a gigantic fascist communist um, state and to brainwash the kids and to uh, make sure they don't develop critical thinking and um, just prepare them for that system that's coming. And she said Bill Gates was involved all right, way back then in the late 70s with, with helping set that up. Way back in the 70s, Bill Gates was involved in this. Yeah, she said, as, yeah, as at least by 1979, yeah, that he was involved. And, and see, here's where it took me years to wrap my mind around this. Because mm -hmm. you're right, as, as you start looking at communism within America, you start seeing people that on the surface, you would think, well, that makes no sense why they would, would go that way, right? Rockefeller, Carnegie, get later, Bill Gates. These are guys who've made their money in this capitalistic system, right? Mm -hmm. And so you would think that, that by nature, they would abhor anything that would have compromised that. But what I well, find... but they do they don't they don't want other people to be able to rise up to their level and right and they already have the money they already they already have that wealth and now it's just the power that needs to be maintained right and 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 I guess until you truly understand what communism does not what it says it's going to do but what it does it doesn't redistribute wealth evenly and equitably across the board there's always those that have the money the power mm -hmm. right and mm -hmm. when once you begin to understand that okay they have a vested interest in which their money and their power may not necessarily be as um vulnerable if it's within this this communist this fascist fascistic system mm -hmm. because they would be they would be the heads so to speak of the new pro american proletariat right yeah where they yeah. they get to be on top still always Absolutely. and forever yep 
yeah, it's a system, it's a control grid to keep the masses down and to maintain power. And yeah, so it's this very bizarre amalgam between monopolistic capitalism, fascism, and communism. This, you know, three very uh, corrosive and uh, systems. And um, yeah, we don't want that. I don't want that. You keep saying something that fascinates me. And that is, you keep lumping fascism in with communism, which I agree with. But if you listen to academics, they'll say, well, no, fascism and communism, those are completely different things. You know, fascists and communists don't get along. I mean, Germany was fascist and the communists fought against Germany in World War II. Explain to, to me and to the listeners how it is those two are more closely related than they are polar opposites. Because I think that's something that's super important to realize. And I'll explain when you're done why I think that is. Well, I, I don't consider myself the, an expert on fascism, but the way I understand it, I mean, is that governments run the businesses mm -hmm. um, and they don't necessarily. So in a true communist um, scenario like the Soviet Union, you didn't have big business. You just had everything, all the industry managed by the government. And as far as I understand it, in a fascist system, there are different businesses, but the government has control, is is very much in bed with them. And the, the businesses are not allowed to just do whatever they want. The government has a say in that. Um, I mean, yeah, it's not really opposite. It's just, it's just a different twist on things. And um, then you add the monopolistic capitalism, you know, we have our Amazon and our Apple and, you know, our Walmart and these various mega companies and they're making the big bucks. The small businesses are getting the short end of the stick and that probably is likely to, to get worse as time goes here in America. The, the government's not going to take over Apple in terms of like, get doing away with the logo and the name of it, but to have, you know, these partnerships with Facebook, with Twitter, um, they definitely are doing that. And it's just, it looks like the powers that be are just using whatever systems work for um, amassing the most power and wealth at the top and keeping the rest of the population um, under control. Yeah. I tore up, I'm, I, I think I've told you this before. I've told everybody else on the podcast. I'm a surveyor by profession. Mm. And one summer I tore my knee up good toward the ACL. It was like a full six month recovery. And uh, I remember I was just getting bored. I'd done just as bad as much office work as I could do to catch up. And the guy I worked for, he was like, well, you want to go to school? You want to pick up some more classes? And I'm like, yeah, that sounds fun. So He's like, tell you what, I'll, I'll pay for half your half of whatever you want to take. Well, I already have a degree in land surveying. So now I'm going to take courses that are fun. And, and I'm going to divulge just what kind of nerd I am. I, I totally went for political science, right? And went towards, towards that, towards world government and, and constitutional studies. And so I just took a hodgepodge of classes. And when I was studying world government, the thing that jumped out to me is how um, ambiguous some of our political terms are, right? Mm, yeah, when, yeah. when we talk about right, left in America, for the most part, 
it's still kind of within, you know, and I'm saying the average person, right? It's still within that kind of 19 or uh, 1776 kind of mindset, right? Right, left on that spectrum. When -hmm. you talk about right, left in Europe, you're talking about fascism and communism, Mm -hmm. right? And so we use that term right and left, and it doesn't mean the same thing as it means in Europe, Hmm. right? So if you were to look at like a whole scale that was nothing but freedom and, you know, the, the right side is, is like complete freedom, almost anarchy, you know, libertarianism, you know, America bumped back to about here. Mm -hmm. But then if you go to the left side of that spectrum, you have communism on the complete end or monarchy, and then you have just a few steps down fascism. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's that ambiguity of terms that I think really confuses a lot of people as well. Right. Like, Oh, well, the communists were against fascism. Ergo, they must be more closely related to uh, to Mm -hmm. us. And Mm -hmm. that's not the case whatsoever. And so I, I, I was fascinated to hear you lump those in together because you're the first person I've talked to that actually kind of recognized how close they actually were. They're not Mm -hmm. miles apart. They are really, really close. And they're just abusive to individual rights and abusive to any people that would try to rise up and usurp the power structures. Right. Right. We, we tend to think that, um, communism could never happen here Mm -hmm. we tend to think that that it's it's one of those things that's a european problem right but that's not the case we see it coming here we've seen that it's been here why why do you think it is that americans are so unwilling to see that just what kind of danger we're really in on this the biggest problem is that educating Americans about the nature of communism was deleted from the the curricula, from all of the education from beginning many, many decades ago, maybe perhaps from the beginning, very specifically that was done so that they would not understand how communism and Marxism work. And um, then we had, I mean, you look at Hollywood um, and those culture makers from the get go, you know, there were those scandals that occurred with different movie directors being found to be communists and there was the red scare amongst um, Hollywood executives, but that was a real thing. Um, they were many of them were um, different Hollywood directors and writers, screenwriters were were um, recruited in like the 1920s to to become communist, and some of them did. And they began inserting that agenda into um, you know the movies and the different productions. And I don't know that. I mean, obviously, socialism and different ideologies friendly to communism have been huge in our entertainment. And now we're to the point of woke insanity where entertainment is just putting out all this neo-Marxist drivel um, for preschoolers, for children, for everyone, um, where it's like hard to even want to watch a movie anymore. Um, It's just so absolutely overrun with neo-Marxist woke ideologies. Um, Communism, again, it's the wolf in sheep's clothing that it can have a nice appearance. It can look nice and warm and fuzzy. And if you don't understand how to look what's beneath the surface, you can be easily duped. And communism really preys on, 
on um, a lot of weak thing weaknesses that we humans have to dupe us. It's just human nature. And so obviously educating people about the true nature of communism is I'm extremely passionate about it. Wrote my book, my documentary based on the content of my book. Um, I'm hoping to reach many more people with this information and not just reach people, but help people. My documentary will be, be used as a tool, segments of it, um, to help people in their local communities to be able to educate people. And I have a whole, I'm not gonna spill the beans on that, but we really need to reach mass numbers of people as quickly as we can to help them understand these agendas. Um, we still, people, a lot of people with, with good hearts, um, com good compassionate hearts have been duped because it sounds like a nice thing to help the oppressed. Of course, that sounds like a nice thing. And we do need to help the oppressed. But if it's involving um, violence and focusing on um, grievance and stoking people to anger, well, there's your red flag that you're dealing with Marxism. Absolutely. You, you bring up a good point that I don't think people one truly understand what fascism, excuse me, what communism is anymore. Um, look, I was a kid when the Berlin wall fell and I remember I was watching cartoons and I remember, I think it was Dan rather, if I'm not mistaken, came on and said, boys and girls, you're going to want to wake up your parents. And so I went and woke up my, my parents and I was like, Hey, you got to, yeah, come watch TV, I guess. I don't know. They interrupted the cartoons. I was super pissed. I remember about I, re I remember that. I was like, you, what what what? You 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 got rid of the Smurfs for Dan Rather, but yeah, I was upset. So I went and woke up my folks. And uh I remember my dad saying, I think this is finally over. I I think we won. And if if I'm not mistaken, and in one of the in the world government class I was in, um, some there was actually a a uh, kind of a dissertation or a thesis wrote that really caught fire within academic circles. This idea of the end of time, right? We had defeated this this monolith of of communist whatever. It's on the dust. It's in the dustbin of history on the ash heap, but it comes back. When when you're starting to encounter um a lot of these things again do you are you surprised it has come back well <clears throat> let me ask I don't you know this. did it ever really leave no no of course not i mean there's several nations that there was there, you know north korea china uh, many other nations have been communist all along yeah it was a lot of people say that communism just kind of went underground in terms of its threat to the West, um, but boy, in the last 10 years, it has certainly shown its face. Um, I wasn't very politically aware when I was a teenager um, or even a young adult. I just was kind of more of generic. My parents were both conservative. My dad was in the military. Um, and so I had more of a conservative leaning, but I was very unaware. It was really and truly um, living in Russia, coming back, studying Soviet history, and then delving into my thesis and studying, you know, up to my neck, as I say, in primary sources of the oppression of Christians in the Soviet Union and, you know, reading all these horrific accounts. And my major professor for my Russian language and literature um, masters, herself being a Soviet dissident who escaped the Soviet Union by the skin of her teeth in the 70s and um, 
we studied the dissident literature of the Soviet Union and boy, um, it's unforgettable. And it really, it really opened my eyes. I think in some ways, I think it was very unusual for, for me to get that kind of education in grad school. I don't think most Russian professors are former Soviet dissidents. I think there's probably a lot more um, progressive type folks that are major professors. Before that major professor, the previous head of the Russian department at Florida State where I attended was actually an LDS man who was one of the first mission presidents for the LDS church in Moscow. And so that whole Russian department at Florida State was, I think, a little bit different um, from the get-go um, due to him um, and his legacy. But yeah, I had an unusual experience because I met different people who also studied Russian history, even Soviet history in graduate school, and they didn't come away with the same type of understanding of communism that I did. I think it also helps that I lived in Russia before and I already saw the aftermath and, you know, the the human toll, not all of it, obviously, but I saw a lot of um, relics of communism and what that had done to people. And I really deeply care about the people of Russia and the former Soviet Union. And so it was very personal to me. So, yeah, but again, I really wasn't politically aware at all until this process that occurred in my mid-20s and kind of matured more into my 30s. If if you're comfortable with it, because I, I, mm -hmm. I don't want to do anything that you're not comfortable with here. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about that that human toll it took mm -hmm. that, that you saw? Yeah. What was it that you saw that left <laughs> that kind of impression? I'm hoping not, I'm not repeat. If I'm repeating anything from our previous interview, let me know because I have a hard time remembering what stuff I no, shared. It, where. It's okay. I can go through and edit a ton. You're good. Okay. Well, just for example, there was one man that we were that as a missionary and our missionaries, we were working with this man in the city of Saratov, Russia, named Carl, and he was a double amputee in a wheelchair in his 80s. Um, the town, the city that I lived in for much of my mission, Saratov, had a lot of ethnic Germans that had settled during Catherine the Great. And Carl had been a soldier for the Soviet army in World War II. And he had been taken prisoner of a prisoner of war by the Nazis and subjected to horrific treatment. Then he was liberated from that. But then what the Soviet Union did is because Carl and, and people like him were ethnic Germans, they were assumed to be spies now for the, for the Germans. And then he was taken to the gulag in the Soviet Union after he'd been um, freed from the Nazi prisoner of, prisoner of war camp. And so he spent years in the gulag after that. Um, he was a very deeply traumatized individual. Um, and I met a lot of deeply traumatized older people. Um, I saw a lot of mental illness more than I was had seen in America. And I a lot of people that would just be come to start crying, talking about their past. And I even met this, um, this really interesting Russian couple when I lived in Salt Lake and I had a, I had a holistic healing practice and this was about 10 years ago. And I had done some work with this woman and she talking about her childhood in Stalinist Russia. She was just bawling and there's just so much trauma. And the way that I came to see Russia after my mission and during my studies, and now I see Russia as a very, and not just Russia, all the former Soviet republics, very deeply traumatized. The people 
are dealing with massive trauma at a generational level and they don't even quite understand it. I think maybe part of what's going on there now is connected with that. Obviously there's much more to that, but it's a, a people very traumatized by their history. And then the Soviet Union fell and then they just had to kind of move on with their lives into this new era. But there was never a reckoning. There was never a chance for the for the people to heal at a generational level. And um and one of the the things that I did with my holistic healing practice, and I'm still to some degree now, is generational healing and understanding how the traumas of our ancestors is passed down to us and impacts us in different ways. And um, there are ways to heal from that. So that that's kind of my understanding on that. Um, just a lot of older people who were very traumatized, many of them mentally ill. You said there was never a reckoning that allowed those people to heal. Mm-hmm. In your mind, what would that reckoning have been? I mean, what what could have happened to to help that healing process? Well, if you look at Germany, and again, I'm not an expert on Germany, but after after the horrors of you know Nazism and Hitler, there was the Nuremberg trials, and there there was a reckoning of some degree where the Nazis had to make amends, and there was a some of them, not all of them, obviously held accountable for those horrific deeds. Um, that was never something that took place in the former Soviet Union. There was never, no one was ever held accountable for, and perhaps the people that should have been held accountable were no longer alive, but there was never a full reckoning of the human toll of the gulag and all those abuses of of the Soviet system. Um, There were some organizations that that would try to um, bring attention to those things, but it was not, it would, there was never any big moment of national reckoning right. for Russia and the other states, the republics. Why, of the why do you think that is? Was, was the rest of the world just ready to be done with the threat of Russia and let's move on? What, what was it that, that didn't allow for that moment? Cause you're right with, with Germany and, and even later wars we've been in, you know, with, with Iraq or, um, Afghanistan, there was a bit of reckoning that took place, right? You did have have a trial for Saddam Hussein. You had a trial for the Nazis. You had, you know, um, trials for certain Taliban leaders and Al-Qaeda leaders. Mm-hmm. What was it about Russia's circumstance that wouldn't allow for that to happen? Well, I've, I've thought about that, and I think there's a few different things. First of all, um, we were allied with the Soviet Union in World War II, America right. was, and Britain. And that was during Stalin's era. And that was during Stalin's most brutal. I mean, it was, we were sending them food. We were, we were, we were aiding and abetting Stalin. And mm-hmm. I don't think the West wants to dredge that up. I don't think they want that known. Um, yeah, we did it in the name of taking out a monster, but who, which was the worst monster? I mean, it's hard to say that if one is worse than the other, they're both I terrible. Say, I mean, I suppose you could go by raw numbers, and I think Stalin did did beat Hitler that way. I, I hate to yeah. term it that way, but he did he did surpass Hitler's numbers that way. Yeah, the Soviets never had gas chambers. I guess they had that going for them. But there are there are things that I've seen. I watched a documentary a number of years ago where Hitler actually gave credit to Stalin for inspiring his hatred of Jews and desire to exterminate them 
because there were, um, I mean, there was a, the Jews in Ukraine, especially, I mean, many of them were executed and Stalin was very um, anti-Jew, but so the West, I don't think wants, wants to put that out there, I think. And then also the gulag, then there's the whole aspect of there are powers that be that don't want to educate people on communism. So they don't want to bring attention to the gulag. I mean, I didn't know what the gulag was. I, I was a college graduate. This is before my mission. I didn't, I don't think I heard, I don't remember when I first heard of the gulag, probably was when I was a missionary. It's not common knowledge like the Nazi concentration camps that every school child in America learned what happened there and, you know, read the, the diary of Anne Frank. Um, nothing like that here in America. So we're not very connected. And then when communism fell, I think we were just kind of glad. I think it just wanted to be swept under the rug. And it what did not directly impact Americans, the fact that there were those horrific um, labor and prison camps throughout the Soviet Union. Whereas with the Nazis, it was Americans who liberated, you know, and who saw firsthand some of those Nazi concentration camps. And so that could not be ignored in America. I got so you. those are the differences that I've thought of. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. I think the other part that, because we're not educated on communism, is this idea that that communism is the the cure-all for any sort of social ailment that's out there and so for just a few minutes i want to pick your brain on on if if russia was truly and because i use russia because i feel like it was the purest form of communism that the world had seen for a while you know i don't think china has come close to it they they obviously were pragmatic enough to understand they had to turn a few levers to become less communist. I still ascertain they are communists, but you know, mm -hmm. communist light. Mm -hmm. Um, what did communism often talks about, you know, Hey, we're, we're completely in, engaged in this idea of getting rid of racism. Did Russia ever really get to that point? I have a lot of thoughts about Russia and racism. I have to say, so I went to college at Florida State, which mm -hmm. is in Tallahassee, Florida, which is deep south. It was 45 minutes south of the Florida-Georgia border. Right. And, I, and I, I, I went there for my undergraduate and I did my master's there. When I, moved, I moved there in 1993 to start college. And I grew up all over America. My dad was in the military. I go to Florida State, deep south, and I feel like shocked at the racism that I saw in Tallahassee. There's literally another side of the train tracks where there's a black university. And it was just jarring for me. Uh, my best friend in high school was black. I grew up, my whole upbringing was not hyper-focusing on race. It was not really a thing. So it was weird to go live in the deep South and see the racism there. But then I went to Russia on my mission and then I really saw some racism. Um, the things that people would say openly um, it was very shocking, very racist against Jews, against gypsies, against people from different, like, let's say Azerbaijan or Armenia. Um, people were just very openly racist. I was again there in the late nineties. Maybe it's a little different now, 
But the whole communist, like, oh, we're bringing all the peoples together, it was just a sham. Same thing with what they said about treatment of women. That's where the I women, was going next. Good for you. <laughs> the women in Russia, I hope it's better now. I haven't been to Russia. It's been 20, 20 years, 21 years since I've been there. But holy moly, the misogyny that I saw when I was there. Women, and part of that, okay, Russia had more casualties from World War II than any other nation. It killed off a, a good chunk of the generation of men. Women had to kind of take over in a sense, but you see a lot of um, families where it's a, you know, a single mom with kids living with the grandma and where are the men to be found? They're drunk or they're dead. Mm. Um, I saw numerous, at least once, maybe twice a week, all winter long, you would see women dragging their drunk husbands home on the ice, physically just dragging them on the ice so they wouldn't freeze to death. Um, you never would really see women drunk, but drunken Russian man, that, that whole stereotype is there for a reason. And, but at the same time, so women running the show, but yet there was a lot of misogyny. It's very, very strange um, dichotomy there. And, you know, the Soviets, and again, I was there pretty soon after the fall of the Soviet Union, they claimed to uplift women, but what they did is they, they, Oh, because women can work now. And now we're going to put all the kids in the, you know, from like the earliest of ages in these kindergartens and these, um, these daycares and be, you know, raised by the state essentially. But, but what ends up happening when women are put in the workforce and the men are just disabled and drunk is the women now have to, and we see this in all countries, women are now responsible for the home and breadwinning. Right. And and in Russia, even up until when I was there, there were no conveniences. Like I was, when I was a missionary there, we were making our food from scratch. If I wanted to eat something other than bread and pasta, it would be made from scratch. I met so many women who worked full time, did all the cooking from scratch and cleaning, and they would go grow their own food all summer long on their plot of land, their dachas, and raise the kids and no husband and all of it that doesn't sound very ideal to me. And um, the very, very staunch lack of, of male leadership, but still misogyny on top of it. And that's kind of like what it was with the, the different um, ethnicities. Um, the Russians were very ethnocentric and not very polite about people of different races. I happen to, to fit in very nicely in Russia with blonde hair and blue eyes. Um, but different missionaries who were like maybe Asian or there was a Hawaiian missionary. Um, I know that they, and I actually had some Mongolian mission companions, um, not treated quite with the same amount of respect. Um, yeah, it's very strange. So yeah, it's all a scam, the sham, what the communists say about, um, doing away with racism and misogyny. That's not what I saw. What about this idea of equality across the board? Did it ever come close to doing that? Well, equality in impoverishment and equality in enslavement and subjugation to, you know, the state in that way. Yeah. I mean, well, it's hard to say there. I'm sure there are some things like 
the one thing that I can say that that Lenin was did well was that there was um, they taught everyone to read. Everyone learned to read. They had to learn Russian, <clears throat> and they did have the public schooling. And you know, there's a lot of smart people in Russia, um, a lot of great scientists and a, and a lot of great minds, and um, you know, and some of them I know would have come from peasant backgrounds. So there was that aspect of it. But um, then there's the equality of, of impoverishment, like I mentioned. Right. Everybody's poor. So we're all equal, with the mm -hmm. exception of those at the top of the proletariat, right? Those, yes. those well, who, at the, at the top government officials, yeah. Right. Yeah, running running the, the, the show, so to speak. Well, yeah. So it, it, and that was the thing that surprised me, and the thing that continues to surprise me is that there's this idea that, Oh no, the, the system of communism is fine. We just haven't found the right person to run it yet. But who is the right person to have that much power? To there's have as one, much power as God? There, there's one guy I would trust, but so far nobody named Jesus has come to administrate that thing, right? Um, <laughs> so I, it can't be ran properly. It doesn't, it, there's no way. Um, I think the founders understood that the founders of the United States, that's why they divided power up. They understood that, that if power is centrally located, you're in a world of hurt and uh, it, it, whether it's communism or socialism, it always collapses in on itself. It never, ever works. The promises it makes are never fulfilled. Mm -hmm. It is, it is the ultimate in getting a bad bill of goods because they'll show you one thing, but what's actually in that box is death, horror, and bloodshed on a massive scale. Um, I read an article by a very, uh, I believe he was educated at Yale, and I can't remember what his name was, but basically he took a tally of anyone that was ever killed through, say, religious wars or you know wars that were just exclusively for for power and land and compared to how many people died under soviet occupation or communist occupation and it blew the rest of the numbers off the charts i mean didn't even come close at least 100 million casualties in the 20th century not counting casualties from war but just from communist nations abusing their own people through famine, through purges, executions, de untimely deaths in prison camps. Yeah, at least 100 million in the 20th century alone. Did you, ever, did you ever study the Ukrainian um, man-made famine, I guess it would be called? I studied that when I took Soviet history. Um, I, I can't recount all of the details of it, but essentially the, the Soviets... Um, one of the things that, that happened in the Soviet Union, which we unfortunately see happening here in America and the West, it's called Lysenkoism. And there was a, um, a head, I don't know if he was the head of agriculture in the Soviet Union in, in that early era or what, but he was one of the top people. And basically communism is such an idea, has such an ideological bent that even science had to meld itself to it. And he had some improper understandings of agriculture um, that were because he was basing his understanding on what it should be according to communism, how plants should grow according to communist ideology as opposed to reality. 
And that resulted in crop failures. Um, then you combine that with um, the purging of the kulaks. The, the kul a kulak was a Russian peasant, many of them in Ukraine also, who um, was maybe slightly more successful and maybe slightly more well off than some of the other peasants, maybe had two cows instead of one. And the kulaks became an enemy of the people because they were, um, you know, greedy or, you know, they were taking too much for themselves and whatnot. And so they would go in the countrysides and ask the kulaks, the people that were maybe had a slightly better house or cheap cows, you have to give up, give us your cow, give us, you know, hand it over, hand over the goods. And the ones that were like, no, this is mine. Well, you're off to the gulag for you. And so the most successful farmers were purged or sent off to the gulag leaving behind the less successful um, farmers. So um, it's kind of a, a dual thing there that led to the famine. And um, I can't remember the number, the count of the, the number of deaths, but it was definitely in the millions, tens of millions, I think. Um, then there was, it was covered up in the media. It was covered up within the Soviet Union and abroad. I mean, there were some accounts that would reach it, but there's, there's um, definitely enough information out there now to understand it was just a mass killing off of the people. I mean, people had to resort to cannibal. I don't know if they had to, but they did resort to cannibalism. Um, I heard an account of of someone who is a Ukrainian American who said that his grandmother told him that they had to they had to decide: are we should we kill our own children and eat our own children, or just oh. let everyone, or we're going to die first and then someone else is going to come and eat our children. It's just unbelievably horrific to imagine. Oh. Just the, the, the human toll, just the human devastation that this one ideology has has cursed the world with is yeah. is unfathomable. And what's even more ironic is that as far as I can tell, communism really gets its its power from two things. The one we talked about was, was this idea of, of constant conflict. Yeah. The other is coveting. Yeah. Right? I know that sounds kind of silly on the surface, yeah. but as you look at it, it's all about people coveting what other people get. Yeah. And never about, okay, so what did they do to get that? And how can I emulate that kind of of work or that 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 discipline that it took to get there? Instead, mm -hmm. it was this get them, right? Yeah. Get awesome. those who've got it and let's spread it around. And so it's all born out of this very primal set of laws or or, or this idea of going against those very early laws that are handed down even on stone tablets right don't covet yeah. don't kill yeah and and it seems to be the the exact opposite the the photo negative of what happens and and it's again you you purge the successful farmers you send them to the gulags or you execute them and then you give it to somebody who can barely get enough to feed his own family it's bound to fail. And it's all born out of this idea of they have it. I don't ergo. They must have got it illegally or they must be immoral. And that is such a poisonous um, thing to, to put in the, 
into the zeitgeist, if you will, of a society yeah. because it, it forces cannibalization of ourselves. Absolutely. And that's what communism does. It takes the best and the brightest and it cannibalizes them. That's a great way to put it. The, the greatest artists and poets, Russia, the, the heritage of poetry in Russia, um, I wouldn't have known if I hadn't studied, well, living in Russia, they are very proud of their poets, Alexander Pushkin and many others. Um, they, and then they were, by the, the Soviet era, the poets that wouldn't just you know, praise communism, and that's all they would write about. If they wouldn't do that, they can no longer write. Some of the best artists fell by the wayside um, because of communism. Scientists with real science, like the people that would stand up to that Lysenko guy and say, no, your ideas about agriculture are all wrong. Well, you're off to the gulag for you. No, you, no we're going to go with the ideological view on science, not the actual, you know, the one that's based more in evidence. So yeah, it cannibalizes people with legitimate ideas um, who promote beauty, who promote um, good things, some of the best and brightest. And the thing is, when you look at other communist nations, they actually would go in, we'll look at like, it's Vietnam, Cambodia. Once a communist regime gets in power, they actually target the educated classes for to be purged because that's their biggest threat of who could take power back and they want it to be a group of peasants um, low level of education um, more willing to be compliant and you kill off all the possible um, people who could take your power back hmm. so i want to switch gears now and go to where we are today yeah which <sighs> news flashes this part won't be happy and fun um, yeah. wh where are we at today on that road? Because I think it's been a road for about a hundred years, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, that, that we find ourselves here right now. Mm -hmm. Whereabouts on that scale are we in terms of just being communist or socialist <clears throat> on, on some level? Yeah. So I don't know if you've ever seen this, um, interview with, the a KGB agent who defected from the Soviet Union in the late seventies. His name is Yuri Bezmenov. He was he was interviewed by G. Edward Griffin in 1985, and this this interview can be found on YouTube. It is I highly recommend it. And in this interview, Yuri Bezmenov lays out he his job as a KGB agent was to um to subjugate other nations and to infiltrate and to brainwash the populace. He said that the most activity, he was a propagandist for the KGB. Most of the KGB's efforts went towards propaganda. Um, the whole espionage aspect of things that we see in movies, that was much less of what they did. Mostly it was propaganda. And he was actually in India as a propagandist. And he said there's four steps, four stages of um, subjugating, um, subverting a nation to communism. And step one is demoralization. And he says it takes between 15 to 20 years um, where you have to get into the education and to demoralize um, the rising generation to teach them that socialism is good, to prepare them to accept socialism. And when this interview was recorded in 1985, he said that that first step was way beyond overfulfilled in America. 
So um, where are we now? I mean, obviously we're like so far beyond overfulfilled with demoralization. It's not even funny. Um, hold on, I haven't looked at this in a while. I want to make sure I get these steps right. When, um, when, when you're looking at that real quick, let me ask you something about demoralization. So please. when he's talking about demoralization, there's, I, I want to make sure I'm understanding here correctly, Julian. I apologize. Yes. I'm kind of slow sometimes. So yes. there's like being demoralized against an opponent right if you're in a conflict or or a sport or whatever and then there's a demoralization as far as stripping away your morals which which one is he talking about there he's talking about stripping away the ideology of of um individual freedom in america and replacing it with socialism okay so so actually taking those morals and values that that used to come almost with our dna Mm -hmm. okay yeah, so um, demoralization, um, the next step is, sorry about that. Okay, no, step, good. Two, step two of, of, ide- of ideological subversion is destabilization. This takes between two to five years to enact. And in this phase, the the nation's economy, foreign relations, defense, its different institutions are, we come under attack to shake the nation at a foundational level. It takes two to five years. I believe we began destabilization in March of 2020. Um, So what, it's been three years. So um, two to five years to destabilize a nation. We're definitely very far gone with that. Step three. Hold on one second. If I could, that's an awfully specific date. Explain to me what happens in March of 2020 that leads you to believe that 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 destabilization occurred. Uh, Lockdowns, COVID lockdowns and pandemic measures and all the the destabilization um, that emanated from that. And then some of it not connected. I mean, we have our borders under massive attack. Um, That's not necessarily connected to COVID, but it's also happening during this time frame. Um, our military <clears throat> is, there's some destabilization with us sending all of our military equipment over to Ukraine. Um, our economy has, is undergoing some destabilization. Um, we just have a lot of that going on. Step three, according to this, Yuri Bezmenov, step three of communist subversion is called crisis. Crisis takes about six weeks to complete, after which the nation has fallen to a communist regime. A crisis, there can be either a um, a war, some extreme economic situation, a a power grid failure. There's a cataclysmic crisis that occurs, and then the new communist leadership takes hold. Step four is called normalization. That is where the communist regime is in power. They're purging their potential opponents. They are um, just going through and making sure that they maintain their power and getting the, the populace used to the new the new kid on the block. So I've thought of this, I've thought of this, and this, I think we might have already have had different phases of crisis and normalization. Um, because I do think that we perhaps have already had a coup inside within our federal government. They already have taken power. They're already trying to normalize us. And it's just, 
not fully taken hold in every aspect yet. Or you could say we're we're very far, we're pretty far advanced with destabilization and there could be some big crisis that could come. Again, I don't know that the powers that be are for sure going to follow the exact pattern of setting up a communist regime. Um, but we can't assume that they're not going to follow that pattern. Right. We we should we should assume that it's possible. And the the good news is is that we still have some element of free speech, obviously not fully, um, as fully as we would like. Um, there's a lot of censorship and as you are well aware. Um, but we still have some time right now where we can try to wake up more of the populace. I don't think we can prevent this crisis from happening. I don't think we can prevent a lot of things, but I think we can prevent this whole thing from being successful ultimately. There are probably gonna be a lot of casualties though in the meantime. Um, we can try to make it so that it's a short-lived, more of a short-lived, um, system that tries to take over. I don't know. I mean, we don't know what, what the future holds, but we can't, we have to assume that following through to a full tyrannical, you know, government in America, that we have to assume that that's possible and that it's imminent and act accordingly. I'm just thinking here, you were talking about normalization as mm -hmm. part of one of the steps. Mm -hmm. You remember what we heard all through the pandemic is that we're never going back to what it was before. There'll be a new normal. Yes, exactly. Exactly. The surveillance, the type of surveillance, and now with the new AI that they have, and of course, the now they want to get that, you all know a Harari talks about wanting to get under the skin of every, every mm -hmm. person so they can have our biometric data. They want all the data on all the people so that um, the AI can, you know, use the its algorithms and whatever to determine who would be a threat and who, you know, and what types of re-education different people would need. I mean, just look at China. Just look at what's, you know, I guess things are calming down a little bit with their latest COVID um, um, spread of COVID, but the lockdowns, you know, barring people into their apartment buildings to starve to death, you know. And just the horrific levels of control. And like, you cannot go anywhere in China. It's illegal to go anywhere without your smartphone that's tracking you. And there's just, China, everyone that I listen to says that that China is the model for um, this new order. And it's not a paradise over there. No. Especially for people who want freedom. No, they're, they're yeah. You're either going to play ball with the government or you're going to get the consequences yes yes um i I, you... I have to say okay go ahead go ahead no no you you first <clears throat> i just have to say i think there is much that we can do to prevent this whole thing from succeeding at least for very long and again we have to take our culture back i don't feel like i have control over what our leadership in washington dc does but our local school boards and school districts, our local churches, what we allow our children to view, the entertainment we allow them to view, we, and it's it's hard, believe me, I'm a single mom and I'm homeschooling my son and um, making sacrifices in order to do so. Um, and he did attend um, 
some charter schools at different times and there were some positive things with that, but the system, the education, there's just so much of it. That's a whole other topic. It, it, it's just, I couldn't leave him in that situation, but we have to do what we can. So our children have true information are raised properly with um, understanding of freedom and so that they don't accept this system and so that they um, understand how, how it's supposed to be and not get brainwashed. Let me ask you this though. We we've, we've kind of tried this idea of flooding, you know, school board meetings. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's worked. We saw it worked a little bit in Virginia mm-hmm. but by and large. And, and maybe I'm wrong. And if I'm wrong, please correct me. But by and large, I feel like that ship has already sailed for public education. I'm not well, sure. I'm not sure there's any saving it as it stands now. And, and what possible. I mean, it is. That's that, that might be true. But so one of the things that and I don't I don't want to spill all the beans, like I mentioned. So the documentary I'm making about the content in my book to expose communism, to expose these agendas here in America, this documentary is to be used. I have um, a way. I'm not going to share it now, but for the average person in any town in America to be able to in, engage very easily in activism to get to wake up more and more people that if they can't get their school boards to remove the communist agendas, then to remove en masse and set up whole other systems. I will say this, I, ha- I was involved last in the last previous school year with attending school board meetings in Washington County, Utah, with a great group of parents. And we did succeed at pressuring our school board here to re- remove pornographic books from the school libraries. And um, we were loud, we were respectful. I was one of the people, sh- I, I shared how hypersexualizing children is actually part of the communist agenda to destabilize society and gave copies of my book to all the school board members to, um, I delivered me and some other people delivered copies of my book to most of the principals in our area and following up with them. I do think, I do think that there are things that we can do as citizens. And if enough people threaten to pull out and are willing and do pull out, and then they're having to shut down schools, there, there are things that we can do, but it takes enough people waking up and taking action and a lot of parents, as we know, are very stressed out right now, a lot of economic pressures on us, but we do have, we do have power and we do, we can go to our churches, our local clergy, I'm talking about any church anywhere in America. And again, my book very much exposes how communism has infiltrated our churches and what that looks like and what specific things to show so that they can be taken out. We can go to those leaders of their churches locally and try to press our churches to remove any elements of communism and so Marxism from the churches and then say, well, if you don't, then we're just going to leave. And I know that especially here in Utah, people don't want to hear that um, amongst, especially like, let's say the LDS crowd. Um, But just in general, across the Christian world, we have to insist that where we worship and where we take our children to be trained, that they're not actually teaching communism mixed with Christianity, which is happening very broadly. And again, pull out. And and if, if the churches will not comply with our wishes to remove communism, which is anti-God and anti-Christ, out of the church, out of our churches, we have the power to do that. And if there's enough of us, we can really make some waves. 
Yeah, and and I'll say this: we know the LDS Church listens to its congregants on some things. I mean, the the Manti Temple was a very powerful mm-hmm. point there, right? They were going to gut it and do to that temple what they're doing to Salt Lake. And enough of the locals stood up and said no, yeah. and they instead went and built another a different one in in Ephraim. But they do listen. Um. The where they've where they've uh, infiltrated churches that's super concerning to me because yeah. if you can get if you can get to a point to where communism and and religion can work together that is a dangerous dangerous thing because well, it's happening it's happening it's been happening for decades religion is supposed to act as kind of the fail-safe mechanism within a society, society's moral compass. Mm -hmm. And if it goes astray, if it goes dark, Mm -hmm. there is nothing left to prevent catastrophe on a scale that leaves human wreckage everywhere. Yeah, and I will say, where do you hear any leaders of any church at all right now, any major churches speaking out against communism, against you know, different act aspects of wokeism and Marxism. You don't hear it. It's not a thing. The the ones that you did hear in the past, of course, Ezra Taft Benson and Billy Graham also was was um, openly and vocally anti-communist back um, in his earlier days. Um, they either were silenced or you know whatever happened. But we don't we don't have leaders of churches speaking out against these agendas we are the people are the ones that have to do it and we have to hold our churches accountable. I will say that out of all the major churches that I study, the top 10 major churches, Christian churches in America, the LDS church has the least evidence of communist infiltration, but what? there is, that's good. There's still some concerning things. And then we have upwards of half of America's mainline Christian churches by mid 20th century. were very deeply infiltrated with communism from the top down. And it's gotten significantly worse um, now. To, we're to the point, again, I don't remember if I mentioned this in our previous interview or if I, another interview that I did last week, we have clergy, we have, there's a YouTube video you can watch with a, a clergyman of some church somewhere on the East Coast and a drag queen preaching a, a sermon to some little children on how when Jesus said, when the scriptures say that to be a peculiar people, well, this drag queen is a perfect example <laughs> of the peculiar people. Oh. I think when it comes to churches, it comes down to one thing, and that's your 501c3 status, right? And that's a big, big thing, yes. And I think if I think we have to start talking to our churches and ask, and then have this conversation with with the church's congregants and say, look, we have a choice to make. Perhaps we lose our 501c3 status. And all of us here within these pews had better be in a position to where we feel comfortable giving more than maybe our normal 10%, because that's the only way they're going to be able to survive, right? I think in some ways, the 501c3 tax-exempt status was a form of heroin for churches. You get them hooked, and then they can't imagine life without it. And you you can strong arm a lot of churches with this idea of bankruptcy or having to shutter the doors 
if they lose that 501c3 tax exempt status? That's that's just one aspect of it. <clears throat> the other is, um, and again, I believe those churches that will not go with with the the ideology at hand and and allow more of this woke Marxism in, um, they will be heavily targeted, especially the, the major churches, heavily targeted um, with hit pieces in the media, um, more more mockery than than normal for those specific churches that won't get with that system with the woke Marxist system. And then in extreme cases, if there's any churches, they have to probably be smaller churches. I think they would be at risk of getting the Branch Davidian FLDS treatment of government raids. Um, they only can get away with that with, with unpopular churches that can be made to be um, viewed as cult, crazy cultists. Um, but with major churches, I think they're, I, I just looking at what I know about how the world works, I guarantee you they have blackmail material on major church leaders of all the major churches, whether it's, whether it's made up or real there, I guarantee you there is blackmail material that they'll, that these powers that be will threaten to come out of different hit pieces against different leaders if churches don't comply. So we, we as congregants of the various churches have to actually tell our leaders of churches, please go ahead and let the hit pieces and fly, let it all fly. And at all cost, let's cut our ties with government control and government incursion, Marxist incursion in our churches so that we can actually be what churches are supposed to be, which is, is helping people develop a, a relationship with God and um, to, to walk with God. Yeah. Yeah. And, and look, if, if I'll say this, you had better start getting to a point. I don't mean you, Julie, but we, as people, we better start getting to a point to where we don't peg our testimony to a man. To people. Absolutely. People are people, no matter who they are, no matter where they go. And understand people are fallible, right? Yeah. And that's okay. If you walk into it and understand that that it's going to happen at some point, you're yeah. going to be let down by either another congregant or something that's said from the pulpit is going to piss you off or what, whatever the case is. Mm -hmm. But we better get to a point to where we start to peg our, our testimonies to something other than people or else we're in trouble. Trust not in the arm of flesh. Exactly. Because when that happens and people get rocked, they're prime pickings at that point. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. I, uh, I also think that, that this is, again, one of those things that shows the genius of the founders, right? Is yeah. sometimes we tend to look at the separation of church and state as a form of protection for the state from religion but it can also work the other direction right and trying to protect absolutely. our churches from the government absolutely so that that healthy separation was there for both parties not just one against the other right most definitely yeah <clears throat> and again with the documentary that i'm making based on the content in my book that is very much going to expose how how in the Soviet Union they infiltrated the churches with KGB agents and how America's churches have been infiltrated with literal communists beginning over a hundred years ago. 
all these different aspects. Um, my documentary exposing that, um, I have a, a strategy to be able to have clips of the documentary that will be able to be used, um, you know, that will be available to be viewed by anyone. And I have a, a strategy to get average Joe, average Sally in any town America to engage in activism, to wake up congregants of any and all churches in their local area um, to this information. And we can do this even with massive online censorship, which I'm sure my documentary will get. We could do this. There's, I have some strategies. I, um, one of my, I've been self-employed for several years, for many years now. And my, one of my careers is uh, with network marketing and I'm, I'm not ashamed of it. Network marketing uses some great principles to activate large numbers of people. Um, and but the product I'm selling here is freedom. And I will use some of my training with network marketing to help activate people to be able to go into their communities and get this information out, even with massive censorship. And I just, I hope it's okay if I plug this, I'm actually- Absolutely, to, please. Um, I need to raise some funds right now to pay my filmmaker um, so we can get the trailer finished and then raise funds to do the whole rest of the documentary. Um, if I'm actually, if anyone would like to donate, please go to beneathsheepsclothing.com slash donate. And I'm doing a, a give, send, go um, with any $15 or more donation um, for my documentary. I will give you three home lessons that I've created for teenagers to teach them about freedom, tyranny, and the ideology of wokeism. Um, those are PDF documents I'll give to you for any $50 or more donation. Um, I'm actually still hammering out some of that right now tonight. Um, there's going to be um, advanced viewing of the documentary for a hundred dollar or more donation. I'm also going to throw in um, a hard copy of my book that will be signed um, beneath sheep's clothing. And um, if there's anyone who really feels strongly that we need to wake up the masses with this information, um, please donate if you can, or get the word out. Um, and that link will be there in um, beneath sheep's clothing.com slash donate. Perfect. Uh, Tell you what, we'll throw, we'll throw up any link you want to in these, in this episode page. Thank and you. Uh, as, as far as, as far as the, what you were talking about with the uh, filmmakers, yeah. you and I need to talk off, off the recording here before we're okay. done. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to fire we're, we're, I know I, I only said just about two hours so we're, we're approaching time but there's a few more things I want to go over here if you if you have a moment sure and the, can you tell me at all about um, let me see if I can look his name up real quick I'm currently reading something W.E.B. Du Bois he was the founder of the NAACP Okay. Now, if I'm not mistaken, he was an avowed communist as well. Um, it's my understanding that the NAACP, yeah, was started out as a communist institution. Yeah. Have in in your have they been able to separate a little bit from that? I I don't I don't know. I'm sure that there's numerous people who've been involved with the NAACP who are just people who you know who are pro civil rights. Right. Um, the communists really latched onto the civil rights movement to try to radicalize um, people who wanted civil rights to radicalize them to communism. So it's kind of hard to pick that apart sometimes. I don't know any more than that, but yeah, definitely there's a communist um, element there. Okay. 
finally, I want to ask about this because I'm curious and I haven't been able to make heads or tails out of it. And that's why I talk to people way smarter than me, like yourself. Um, with what's going on in Russia and Ukraine right now, is there any spillover from its history with communism that is directly impacting this? Is there any ties back to communism that we can look at and say, oh, there it is. It's not, it, it was never completely gone. In my opinion, the biggest tie over is what I already mentioned, which is unresolved trauma. That is trauma that is unresolved will show its head in some form again at some point. And so had to have these countries now be involved in war. And Ukraine in particular um, was just pummeled. Um, you know, the Nazi, the, the Nazi soldiers came and did a lot of damage also in Ukraine during World War II. And um, I think unresolved trauma is the biggest one with that. Going back further, the relationship between Russia and Ukraine there are, there's have been tensions there, although Ukraine is the is the cradle of the Eastern Slavs. It's the Kiev is the, the founding city of all the Eastern Slavs, which is Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine. They all come from a, that common place, and their languages are very close. Um, they are brothers. Russia always has been kind of the overbearing older brother, who you know kind of likes to maybe take too much dominion over the others. This war is a fabricated war, in my opinion. I, it's very painful for me. I, I can't look at what's going on. I look at enough really hard, heavy things, and I, and I'm actually a very empathic person, and I have to kind of separate myself emotionally. Um. So, but anytime I've looked more closely at what's going on, the human toll in Ukraine, not just with this war, but even before it, it's it's very painful for me. Yeah, I think, I think. <clears throat> I think both governments are probably pretty bad, right? Ukraine's government was probably, not probably, was very corrupt. You know, I think Russia's, you know, we know we know Putin's off his political opponents, right? Doesn't necessarily speak to a smooth transition of power where where the populace has a say and in, in who's ruling things. Um, what's unfortunate is that caught in the middle are just people, right? Yeah. Just people. Um, but I don't think any of this would be possible without some sort of deep-seated recognition of um, looking for the strong man or the strong central government. Mm -hmm. And that's the ultimate fear, right? Is that because people have been conditioned to look for that, there mm -hmm. might be brief moments where, where people don't look for that. But if that's what you've known for generations, um, I, I think people tend to go gravitate back towards that authoritarian kind of way of doing things. Well, Julie, we covered a lot of stuff. Is there anything we didn't cover that you want to get to? No. And you asked a lot of questions that no, no one else has asked me in interviews. It was very fun. Thank you. Um, I just think, no, I think we covered a lot of bases and um, I, I think it's important to, to recognize the danger that we're in without going into to fear. And yeah. I know that can be difficult, um, but we need to go into a proactive, a proactive place where we, in connection connection with the divine, find our direction of what our purpose is, what what we need to be doing with our families, with our children, with different 
acts of preparedness. For instance, I've been involved the past few years with growing a lot of food, um, helping my friend at her homestead and and learning how to can food and preserve food and all that. And But also, what can we do to, to understand these agendas more fully and help wake others up? Um, we, there's a lot that we can do, even with very dark forces working against freedom. That's, I, I guess, the main point I have. That's awesome. I got one last question, then I'm going to let you go, because I just find this conversation fascinating. Mm-hmm. Where you look at the two main thrusts of communism mm-hmm. that allows that ideology to thrive, mm-hmm. conflict and envy. Mm-hmm. I think envy is one of those personal things that each one of us are going to have to get over. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're going to, that's a God problem, right? That's Mm -hmm. one that we're going to have to take to God and, and be like, heal my heart. Yes. But this conflict one, this Mm -hmm. one is a little more external, right? Mm -hmm. How do we combat that conflict narrative? Because you're talking to a guy who's very flawed, right? When I mm-hmm. get hit, per se, my first instinct is to hit back, but harder. That's mm-hmm. not necessarily ha- a good way of doing it. So how is it we diffuse this this conflict um, that seems to be propagated by those wanting this communist system? Because there's a part of me that thinks if we cannot, we've got to somehow be able to get our point across without being part of the conflict. Yeah. Does that make any any sense? How do we do that as people? I think there's multiple different areas and then I'm sure other people could think of more than what I'm going to say. I think, I think being strong, first of all, um, I trained in the martial arts for a few years before I had my son and my instructors are always like, you train in martial arts, so you don't have to ever use it. You don't train in the martial art, so you go out and, and hurt people. You train so that you have that confidence within yourself, and you you know that you're not going to need it. But in the event that some wacko tries to hurt you, you can defend yourself. So you, for defense, there are times when violence is, you know, if someone's trying to harm your child, someone's trying to do bodily harm to you. Yeah. A person is justified in self-defense. Um, I think the ultimate answer to all of it, it's the same as with envy is, is rising up as people and, um, rising more into our higher selves, uh, that is just above this whole level of conflict. And I think having compassion on our enemies, even like, the ones that we think are just evil through and through, they're serving a purpose here on this earth um, to expose people to evil. And that is part of at least why I believe why we're here to be able to choose. And so we can have a level of respect for even our opponents and um, not a hatred, no hate. We don't need to have hatred, but um, but to be strong, we need to get ourselves healthy, be able to defend ourselves I say even have love for our enemies. I think that's what Jesus said also. Um, and those are my simple answers. Um, yeah. Those are I my don't think answers. those are simple answers. I think that those are hard answers. Mm-hmm. Because 
I keep coming back to two guys, always. Well, three, if you count the source. But I come back to three people who won and did it very unconventionally, right? You had Jesus, who, Mm -hmm. if you believe who Jesus was, yeah, he could have snapped his fingers and not died and whatever, Mm -hmm. but chose not to hit back. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether you like him or not, Martin Luther King Jr., you know, he was like, read Jesus, read mm-hmm. the Beatitudes, mm-hmm. and then be nonviolent. Don't mm-hmm. hit back. And then Gandhi, the same thing. Mm-hmm. Gandhi openly said, we're using the tactics of Jesus here, mm-hmm. which really pisses me off because I'm a big fan of hitting back. But at, at the end of the day, I think that's the only thing that wins, right? We We have to... We have to be able to kind of take it to a certain extent, that extent being, you know, bodily harm, obviously. But I think I think more than that, I think I think where the communists have been really good about being able to infiltrate and slither slither their way in, I think we have to start doing a better job of evangelizing for things like freedom and rugged individualism and capitalism and and those sorts of things but Mm -hmm. i I don't know we'll we'll see how it all shakes out but yeah julie it was awesome let's do this again sure i'd love to um let's let's uh like i said stick around for five minutes when we're done recording but i think you're a rock star i think that that Mm -hmm. your voice is so needed right now because I just don't think people are aware and you're, you're definitely out there ringing the alarm bell. So I appreciate that, but let's, thank you uh, so much for having me. You bet. Let's, uh, let's talk again and definitely keep me informed and let me know when that documentary comes out. Cause I'd love to have you on again. Absolutely. All right. Bye everybody. You're listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast.